You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy. I'm Joanne Levy, and I make books for tweens for a living. As a teen, Joanne Levy always had her nose in a book. As a grown-up, she left the corporate world behind to write books for teens. She's gone on to pen her own unique brand of kidsland with stories like Sorry for Your Loss, about a 12-year-old aspiring funeral home director known as Corpse Girl. Here's my chat with Joanne Levy. Who are you and what do you make for a living? My name is Joanne Levy and I make kids' books for a living. Okay, so how, what goes into making kids' books? How did you get started doing this? So, and I should clarify, by making, I mean I write them. I don't physically put them together. Um, that's what I have a publisher for. So, uh, how did I get into it? Um, I started writing books for adults way back when, and um, I guess my maturity level stunted at about 12. (laughs) Um, So I actually found myself writing for kids and a little more successful at that. But um, backtracking to how I got started writing, uh, I've always told stories. I've always been a storyteller, um, be it a class clown, getting in trouble in school, or just, you know, telling kids around the playground different stories and making up stuff. So it was sort of a natural progression to turn that into, you know, writing books and stories and, and putting words out there. Right now, what, what is the age group that you write for now? Uh, I like to say 8 to 12 and immature adults. Well, I'm an immature adult, but I'm definitely nowhere near 8 well, to 12. my books. <laughs> <laughs> but so how does somebody who is clearly not 8 to 12, how do you write for 8 to 12? I mean, where are you getting ideas from? Where's, where's the inspiration coming from for these things? Part of it is my own traumatic childhood. And when I say traumatic, I don't mean my family was traumatic. I mean, I was a a dorky, awkward, (laughs) um, weird kid, uh, as all kids that age are. But I I still feel those feelings very acutely. Um, And I just remember. I remember the embarrassment. I remember the awkwardness. I remember how unsure I was of everything, but how sure I was at the same time, you know, um, knowing everything, but yet knowing nothing. Um, so I channel that into my characters and there's always a piece of me in all of my main characters. Um, sometimes it's just a nugget. Sometimes it's a big thing, but there's always a little bit of me and maybe the tween that I was in all of my characters. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's just channeling my childhood in certain ways. And also we had, um, when I was that age, we actually moved from Hamilton to Toronto for a year. And because I have that milestone, I can remember that age so well. Because if it happened the year that we were in Toronto, Toronto, um, I can place it in my growing up timeline. Right. So are, are some of these stories themselves. I mean, I understand the characters can be elements of you and, and, and facets. Are some of the stories actually autobiographical in nature? Like, do you actually remember some of these things happening to you? The only story that is even semi-autobiographical is the book that just came out in April, and that's called The Sun Will Come Out, and it's set at a summer camp. And I went to sleepaway camp for three years, and two years were great, and then my third year was just horrible what happened with just terrible mean girls and just it was so stereotypical mean girls that were just awful 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 
And so there's a few things in that book that actually happened. And there's actually a few things that I had to take out of that book because they were so traumatic that my editor's like, "Mm, no, no. Um, And well, more my inner editor and, and friends who read it, but just like, no, that really happened. Oh no, you can't put that stuff in. <laughs> so it's that that was sort of semi-autobiographical. But even the the events aren't all that um taken from real life, but the feelings are. So that I was able to channel sort of real-ish events. Um yeah. So it it generally speaking, it's more feelings from that time and crushes and and the just the weirdness of being that age and the awkwardness uh, rather than actual events. To have to say, it's pretty impressive that I'm talking to an author for tweens, I guess they're called who, uh, whose books contain absolutely no, to my knowledge, vampires. Not the ones I write. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There are some out there. Um, The closest I've gotten to vampires is a ghost. Um, some ghosts. My first book was called Small Medium at Large, and there was meddling ghosts like a like a booby, a meddling booby ghost. Um, but no, no vampires. She just give you butterscotches and stuff like that. Well, she was trying to set up the father on dates, and yeah, yeah, just awkward. Let's roll back a little bit because you've been writing for many, many years. This has been uh, uh, a professional pursuit of yours for some time, but you didn't you didn't do it professionally for a long time. You, you, you got into it where around 2013. Is that right? What were you doing before? Um, yeah, it's, it's been a long, weird path to publication. So I didn't go to school for writing. Um, I actually went to school for, I did a BA in labor studies at McMaster university. Um, and which I'm really using now, um, as you do, (laughs) but, um, yeah, so I wanted to get into HR Uh, I wanted to do HR and uh, I was working in employment for different agencies uh, under contract for uh, Human Resources Canada, yada, yada, yada. So I got a um, a course booklet from Mohawk College. Um, They come in the mail, you know, twice a year. And I opened it up and I was looking at my HR courses um, to get my designation. And I saw a creative writing course. And then I saw the HR course. And I took the creative writing course and I've never turned back. So in one of my jobs in employment, um, I had a lot of time on my hands. So I just started writing stories because I was bored and had nothing else to do. So that's sort of the origin of it. Um, So, no, I didn't go to school for it. Well, I took the the courses at Mohawk and then uh, Sheridan, but more workshopping courses than instructional, that kind of thing. So you know, it's just that logical progression of telling stories. Right. And then was there a, a, a big break? Was there a moment where you kind of went pro? Like, did someone approach you and said, I, I've got to get, I've got to publish these. You've got great stories. Not even close. No, it was, <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long, long slog. It's, you know, taking the courses. I took the three creative writing courses Um, and developed critique groups uh, with other people where we exchanged writing back and forth. And it was a lot of slogging it out and working on my craft and working and working and working. And back then I was writing for adults and trying to get an agent. And because agents are on commission, um, they won't sign you unless they think they can sell your book. So it's sending out queries, cold queries, cold, like query, query, query. And I think I logged 
before I sold my first book to a publisher, over a thousand rejections. So it's, you know, it, it was a long slog. So nobody came to me and said, we want to buy your story, write it for us. It was me saying, will you buy my story? Will you buy my story? And here's a different story. And, you know, many, many years of trying and failing, trying and failing. And, and finally it happened. What's it like to get a thousand no's? And how do you keep going? What, what, what kept you motivated throughout all of that? <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. I think just stupid. <laughs> as terrible as it sounds. Honestly, I think if I had known it was going to take that much rejection to get to my first yes, I probably wouldn't have done it. And to be honest, it felt like it almost felt like um, like a slot machine. So you pull down the lever, you fail. You pull down the lever, you fail. You pull down the lever, you get a nickel and you think, oh, I got a nickel. The next one's going to be a dollar. And then you pull it, you fail. You put like, it's, it's little successes along the way. And then, but you always think the next one's going to be it. And that's honestly what kept me going forward. The thought of if I quit and tomorrow I would have gotten a yes, that would have killed me. We're going to keep you out of Vegas. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Honestly, that sounds like my golf game. It's like I hit terrible shot, terrible shot, terrible shot, terrible shot, terrible shot. One marginally kind of not so bad shot. And I think I've, of course, I should be joining the PGA. Then terrible, terrible, <laughs> terrible, 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 terrible. And then I go drink. So tell me about your current work. Tell me about what's going on because you've gone from a thousand no's to somehow in 2020, 2021, in, in 13 months, you're, you're, you're putting out three books. So something's obviously gone right after all of those queries. So tell me what, what's going on right now. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's sort of the culmination of many years of work that just sort of happened to all come about at once. So the book that, came out in uh, September of 2020 called Fish Out of Water. That came about very quickly. But I, I also had one in the pipeline from before that, which is the one that came out in April called The Sun, is, uh, the Sun Will Come Out. And that one was nine years in the making. Um, that one, I wrote it. It didn't sell. I, I sent it out again. It didn't sell. I had a different agent. It didn't sell. And finally, it sold. So it's one of those just keeping at it, keeping at it, keeping at it. And the book that I have coming out in October um, called Sorry for Your Loss is about four or five years in the making. And that one, I've never worked harder on a book just because of the subject matter. It's it's set in a Jewish funeral home and it's based on the one that my dad manages um, in Hamilton, not based on, but inspired by. So, you know, one of those getting all the details right and, and uh, making sure I did everything properly and it's still a good fun story for kids. Fun. Um, <laughs> a fun story you know, about a funeral home. A funeral home. Yeah. <laughs> Worked for six feet under. Uh, <laughs> trauma. and de- Well, I call it six feet under meets Judy Bloom. So <laughs> there you go. Um, but yeah, it's all these, all these things sort of happened all at once. And, and, you know, I think when you're in the bookstore and you see all these books and you think, Oh, you know, three books in just over a year, that's not a big deal, but it's actually, it's a lot. I mean, many authors are a book a year, a book every two, three years. And there's a reason for that. It's, it's a lot to promote a book. It's a lot going on behind the scenes and you're reading it over and over and you're editing it and sending it back to your editor and it comes back. And it's, it's a lot of work. 
It's a lot of work. I mean, I'm grateful. Don't get me wrong. I'm grateful to have all this work and, and things going on. And, and it was a long slog to get here. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's an embarrassment of riches, you know. I want to talk to you about the ideas. I mean, you've got, so you said there's a book that came really quick. There's a book you were literally battling for nine years. And another one that you said is the hardest one you've ever written. And that took four to five years. When When you've got things that are taking nine years and four years, how do you know that they're even good ideas? Like if you're getting rejection after rejection after rejection, or for that matter, you're getting notes and notes and notes, or you're getting, I'm sure, tired with it or bored with it, or you start second guessing it. Like how do you know it's a good enough idea to stick with it for nine years or four years and plow through and get through the heavy, difficult parts of it? Yeah, I, th- I think part of it is pure stubbornness. Honestly, I mean, I'm just stubborn. Um, and part of it is that gut feeling like, you know, this is good. Now, by the same token, I've had ideas that I thought were absolutely amazing and didn't sell and probably never will. But at the same time, if, if you really, really, really think it's, it's good and, and you have your critique group and they read it and they're like, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. You must sell this. I mean, that, that helps, too. I mean, I guess you get, a, you get a gut feeling and you get a sense of your own work where it fits in the market, if you're writing the correct story for you to write, and and if there's a need for it. You know, that this book set in a funeral home, I've never read any books set in a funeral home um, for kids. And it's, it's, you know, we're not doing kids any favors when we're hiding them from death. And I think it's really important. And I think that the work my dad does is really important. And I wanted a safe, accessible way for kids to read about death and what happens at funerals. So, I mean, that I knew in my heart that was the right book, you know. And so you just you just get a sense of it. But I also have a couple ideas that I'm that I'm like, "Mm, not so great or not for me. You know, sometimes you get an idea that you realize this is not my story to write somebody else will write it and do a much better job than I ever could. So it's, you need to trust yourself and, you know, also be savvy to the market and what, what your strengths are. It was, it took me a very long time to realize that I needed to write funny books. I thought I needed to write serious books and, you know, I, I tackle a lot of serious topics, but my forte is funny books for tweens and books that are funny for tweens. Um, so for me to write these lofty, important literary books, nope. You mentioned that you were working with a writing group. Is this is this, this is a group of authors that you share stuff with, that you check each other? Is, is, is it like a book club, but a, a written book club? Sort of. I haven't worked with a specific critique group in a lot of years. So when I was first starting out and I took courses at Mohawk and Sheridan, a lot of the students would group up and share stuff every week or every couple weeks, and we would trade stuff. And it's through critiquing other people that you can even, you learn how to critique other work and your own even better. And it's just a great way to learn how to write. Since I've, you know, gotten book contracts and and I'm busier, I don't have the time to sit down with a specific group. Um, So oftentimes, I will trade manuscripts one-on-one with other authors. Um, or sometimes one will call me up and say, well, not call me, I don't answer the phone, email me and say, do you have time to read? Um, you know, and I'll return the favor down the road. And it's a very common thing with authors that will, it's called a beta reader. So people will trade manuscripts back and forth. So I don't work with a structured group now, but I do have readers for my books. 
you've got three books coming out and I'm curious, are they all with the same publisher? Like, is, is it normal to have multiple books with one publisher? Or as you said, you were, you were trying to shop these around for, you know, a long period of time. Did one publisher come along and pick them all up? To answer your first question, yes, these are all with the same publisher. Um, generally, it really depends. I don't think that the industry is the same as it used to be, where there was a sort of a loyalty between an editor and an author, and they would work together for the author's entire career and all their books would be, you know, it doesn't work that way anymore. It's more book to book. Now, of course, if you find somebody you work with well, as I have, you want to place books with them because you have that rapport and working with them is is great. But generally speaking, it's book to book. So if your next book isn't great, they may not buy it. You know, it's it really depends on, you know, the writing and what the book is. So my I have one, two, three, four, five books, um, including two to come with Orca Book Publishers, which is out of Victoria. And uh, they're absolutely great to work with. Yeah, I pitched them. I actually pitched them a book that hasn't sold, but the editor liked my voice and said, would you consider writing something else for us? So that's how it worked. It was it was really actually nice to write something for them and um, know that they were looking for something from me. Well, And that leads me to a question about publishers themselves in today's day and age. I mean, everything is getting considerably more niche and more focused. You know, you've got record labels that are exclusively for certain geographic areas and certain genres of music and even subgenres and so on and so forth. Is the same thing happening in writing, in books? Is that, you know, are publishers looking for really, really narrow things at this point? Or is there still some openness to experimentation, to finding a new voice? Publishers are looking for blockbusters. I mean, that's, that's what it boils down to. But at the same time, Smaller indie publishers um, like Orca and, and other smaller publishers, I think, have more latitude to look at um, smaller books that may be more niche. Or um, I think people are looking more for diverse books these days um, to be more representative of our population and what, you know, what's out in the world. So... I think that I don't want to say more niche. I mean, publishers are still businesses the way everything else is a business and they need to sell books. And, you know, I don't, I don't think many of them would take on a book knowing they'd only sell 20 copies to the author and their parents. So, you know, everybody wants to make money, but at the same time, I think a smaller publisher has, has more ability to take more risks um, rather than say a big Simon and Schuster needs to do a big profit and loss and make a gazillion dollars. Otherwise they can't keep the lights on. For somebody with so many books coming out and so many ideas, it seems like, do you ever find yourself at a loss for ideas? Geez, that's a hard question. No, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, there are times when I think I have no ideas for a new book, but then as I'm finishing a book, I start to get ideas for the next book. So it's gotten to where I trust my process. And even if I don't have anything in my head, I know that something will come. I know that it will. It just, it just does. And, and I think that's the nature of being a writer is that even when you're not looking for an idea, it'll hit you in the head and you have to write it. You know, 
the beginning of this pandemic was very difficult for a lot of creatives. I think we were all so stressed that, you know, talking to a lot of my writer friends, everybody's like, I have time, but I have no creativity. I don't want to do it. I don't want to sit down and write. All I want to do is eat chips and watch Netflix. And, you know, I struggled with that too. And luckily I had these two books that were sort of almost in the can. So I wasn't drafting anything new. I didn't feel like I had to be creative. I was in the editing process. So I could take work that already existed and just keep working on it. And that's where I needed to be anyway. So I actually had a little bit of a fear, you know, what's next for me because I don't feel creative and I don't feel like writing anything new and and I just am not into it. And then all of a sudden I got an idea and I wrote a pitch and I sent it to my editor and she bought it. And then I just wrote the book. So, you know, trusting the process that when I'm ready to write it and when I need to write it, it comes. So I feel very lucky that that happens. It's, it feels like lightning striking, but it's, it strikes a few times. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I, I mean, I speak with a lot of creative friends and they, as you said, they, they, they were really kind of hitting their heads against the wall. They weren't able to find any sort of creative juice. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that everybody was holed up. It's not just that they were upset about things. It's just so much creativity comes from interacting, from being out there. That's its superpower. If you're not there, you're not inspired. It's really tough. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the people that you work with, because we know you work with an editor. Is the editor at the publisher? Is that how that works? Like the, the publisher has an editor that works with you and then the publisher is the company? Yeah. So the editor is in house with the publisher. So she generally is the acquisitions person. So that's who gets the pitch or the full manuscript. And if she likes it, she takes it to her board or her acquisitions board. It's different at different publishers, but a lot of times manuscripts are only taken on by committee. Sales needs to say, okay, we can sell this down the road, you know, and everybody gets in on it. Um, so it, it starts out being an individual process and then it goes to the group. If they all okay it, then they come back. And then, um, most of my contact is with, um, that editor and we talk about the book and what it's going to look like and, you know, all her notes. Um, and then I, my next point of contact is with publicity. So I have a publicity person once the book is closer to coming out and, uh, she does, a lot of the, she sends out the advanced copies to people and does um, ads and things like that. So, Well, and that leads me to my next question, which is that there's a lot that goes into selling a book once it's on the shelves or digitally or otherwise. And what is involved in that? What's, what's some of the offline things that, that you do that you wind up doing for that matter, and as well as your, your publisher winds up doing? And what are some of the online things that you guys do? Yeah. So most of it, I mean... When you watch TV and you see an author um, just sold their book and they go on a book tour and, you know, that's a reality for so few people, even in non-COVID times. Um, you know, we're talking blockbusters where the publisher will will spend like tons of money for ads, print ads, online ads, Goodreads ads, send the, the author on tour across the, the U.S. Blah, blah, blah. So it's pretty rare um, for most authors to get that sort of, I don't want to say support, but financial support behind them. So a lot of it does fall to individual authors to to get their own press, um, to do blog tours. Um, Some will do driving tours. Some will even finance their own tours, um, which is, it 
it's difficult, especially for Canadian authors, because, you know, where are you going to go? I'm going to drive out to <laughs> Calgary and Vancouver. Anyway, um, yeah, so a lot of it is is online and just, you know, getting the word out and, and doing as much as you can. Social media is basically free, so you do what you can. And, and for kids' books, it's a little different again, because it's you can't market to 10-year-olds. You know, they're not on Facebook. They're not on Twitter. So you're actually marketing to the gatekeepers. So librarians and teachers and parents, um, and it's a whole different thing. So it's, it's its own challenge. What are some of the things you're doing on Facebook to market to them? Because, I mean, let's be fair, people don't want to be hit over and over and over again by somebody somebody's marketing messages. I mean, the big brands know this, the small brands know this. Us as individuals, we know that if we... If we had our way, we'd have no commercials anywhere. Well, we're watching yeah. Netflix. We enjoy Netflix because there's no commercials. In fact, we'll pay a, pay a premium for it. So, I mean, how do you interact with people and how are you getting the word out um, when you're on a platform like Facebook without being that person? Super salesy. Yeah. I mean, I have an, an author page on Facebook. I don't use it much. It's probably pretty neglected. Um, it does update when I update my blog. I mean, that's my my primary way of pushing stuff out is through my blog. Um, you know, I mean, most of my Facebook friends are, are writers or teachers or other book people. Um, so you do talk about your own stuff and you share their stuff and you try to be reciprocal as much as you can. And, and, you know, it's a pretty small industry, the, the kid lit industry, especially in Canada. So we, many of us all know each other. So, you know, we support each other as much as we can. Um, Twitter is a great place to, to get the word out, um, especially to teachers and librarians. Personally, I hate Twitter. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I find it very toxic and it's such a time suck for me. And I just don't, I just don't have the time or the energy for it. So I'm still on Twitter. If somebody tags me, I check it maybe once a day and retweet stuff, whatever. Um, I like Instagram. It's mostly pictures of my cats and the odd picture of my lunch and you know, a book here and there. Um, so maybe I'm not the most effective at promoting my books, but I, I do other things as well. There's Goodreads and, and I'm trying to, um, you know, I do some volunteering behind the scenes with some different associations that to get the word out. And, you know, I'm hoping word of mouth, you know, and, and my publisher is great about getting the word out as much as they can as well. I mean, it's such a glutted market everywhere that you feel like you're screaming into the wind sometimes, but you know, that the, the books get out there and kids find them and, you know, you hope for the best. Beyond social media, is there any technology that you use in actually writing your books? Is there something that you, you just kind of swear by? There's a lot of these new apps that are helping people write with, you know, there's Grammarly with writing and there's different, you know, writing platforms. And uh, do you use any of those and do you swear by them or is it just pen on a page? Oh, pen on a page. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, <laughs> I had to take extra classes when I was a kid because my penmanship was so bad. <laughs> I don't think they teach uh, penmanship now. No, no, I don't think so. So I, there are a lot of writers who swear by a program called Scrivener and it started out as a screenwriting software and it's evolved and some people just absolutely swear by it. I bought it. I hate it. I stopped using it. Um, I actually, I use word. Word and I'm advanced enough that I can use it to do a lot of the things that Scrivener does for other people. So I, that's it. 
I just use Word and I sit and I type. And sometimes I'm lucky enough to be sitting in the backyard and typing on a laptop. Otherwise, it's sitting here at my desktop. There's no real special tools required. What do you do in a day? I mean, what's your process? Do you Are you one of those people that wakes up at like four in the morning and you write for four hours and then you don't touch anything ever again? Or do you wake up and ease into the day and kind of do all the things you probably have to do before you can actually get to your writing? What, what, what's your process? Uh, closer to the latter. Um, so I actually, my day job is I do it with other authors. Um, so that's how I earn the most of my living. Um, so that's what I do first thing. So I get up, I pour my coffee and I start doing client work and I have a stable of probably about uh, any given time, five or seven authors that I work for on an ongoing basis. Some, I just do their newsletter once a month. Some it's an everyday thing, checking fan mail and, and um, just working on other stuff for them. So that always comes first because that, you know, pays the bills. Um, and I find I'm more creative in the afternoon. So once I get my client work done, uh, I'll have lunch and, um, you know, play some words with friends. And then I start writing in the afternoon. Um, That's a typical day. I don't write every day. I'm not one of these people who says you must write every day. Otherwise, you're not a real writer. (laughs) I write when I can. I write when I'm on deadline. I write when I have a story in me. Um, Not to say I'm one of these loosey-goosey writers who doesn't get stuff done. I'm very self-disciplined and I get it done. So if I need to write, I write. And uh, it's, you know, a lot of writers will call it butt in chair. And that's what it is. You you know, you put your butt down in the chair and you get the work done. If you wait for the muse to come, you'll never get anything written. So it's work just like anything else. You know, a lot of folks I speak with who, let's say their creative endeavor is not actually their full time paying for everything kind of a, of a job. And a lot of them resent or are embarrassed about this other job that they have to do in order to put, put food on the table and pay the bills. You know, do you ever resent having a day job? I mean, you have three books coming out. That's unbelievable. They're in stores. They're being reviewed. You're out there selling and marketing them. But you also have a day job, and that day job is supporting other authors. Are those authors, do you ever re- resent them? Do you ever get jealous that they have administrative duties that they need to offload on another person or are they just terrible at them? And that's why they have to do them. How do you feel about having a day job? It's well, it's funny. I mean, originally I used to work at a bank and I was an executive assistant for a VP at a bank. And that's where I honed many of my admin skills. So, um, and when the bank decided that I didn't need to work for them anymore, um, and restructured me out, I decided I'd go full time and work for other authors because I'd been working part-time for one for a couple of years So even then I was writing. I mean, my first book came out. I still had a full-time job at a bank outside my home. Um, What I loved about that job is that I left my job at the job. So I could come home in the evenings and the weekends and write. And my brain was still fresh. I didn't have to, you know, think about the bank. And, uh, and, you know, my my parents would be like, don't you want to be ambitious and get a real bank job? No, no, I don't, because that's not my dream. You know, I don't want to pursue a job at the bank. So anyway, um, yeah. Do I resent other authors because they have the ability to pay me to to do stuff? Uh, No, because I love what I do for other authors. I love admin work. I am such a spreadsheet nerd. And (laughs) I'm just one of these people that's just embarrassing about office supplies. Um, 
you, what you can't see behind me, where is it? Over here? That's a whole bin of Sharpies. <laughs> and there's more spread around my house because this is just, this is who I am. So I couldn't, I couldn't buy all my Sharpies if I didn't work for other people. But I mean, most of my clients are a lot more successful than I am. I mean, I have, I'm proud to say I have a few clients who are New York Times bestsellers and instant bestsellers, and they do great work and they're just wonderful people. And I love working for them. So do I resent them? Absolutely not. Do I wish I could be one of them? Someday, someday. I mean, we all pay our dues, right? So, but it is an honor to work for them. So I don't resent them. I'm happy to work for them and I'm happy to be able to have a job where I can work for them part of the day and then work for myself doing my own writing part of the day. It, it allows me a lot of freedom um, and I can work in sweatpants sitting in my home or in my backyard. So it, it's a blessing, really. It, it really, really is. So tell me, what sort of advice do you have to give to a, an aspiring writer? someone who's dying to get into, whether it's the kid lit game or whether or not it's adults, novels, poetry, what advice do you have for an aspiring writer? Well, there's always lots of tidbits of good advice and lots of tidbits of bad advice, but I will say, read, 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 read. I mean, I just, I'm astounded by people that say, and there's, there's always people that say, oh, I could write a book. Well, I've got a book in me, but they're not readers. Well, how can you write a book if if you don't read them, if you don't know what it is to put into a book? So I absolutely think that writers are readers first and voracious readers and read outside your genre what what you want to write, even if it's to find out what you don't like or find out what's badly written. I mean, there are bad books out there. There are books out there that you won't like. Um, But I think key is reading a lot. And if you're serious about it, and you don't have to be serious about writing just to write. I mean, if you want to write just for the joy of it, write for the joy of it. It's accessible to everybody. Um, But if you are serious about publication, um, find like-minded people, whether it's by joining an association or taking a course at a community college or workshops or whatever. Just find your people and support each other. Because I think that that will get you a lot further. It's it's a solitary business. It's it can be a very lonely business, but if you can find your writer people, um, it's a lot less lonely. And a rising tide lifts all boats. And Kidlet, the Kidlet community, children's book writers, I find are the most supportive people out there, and we embrace each other and and lift each other up. And you know, it's a hard business. It's there's a lot of rejection involved. Um, so find your people. And with that said, Joanne, where can people find out more about you? The best place to find out more about me is uh, my website. I've got the links to the neglected Twitter there and Instagram, uh, joannelevy.com, J-O-A-N-N-E-L-E-V-Y.com. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing how you make a living. Oh, thank you. This has been very fun. Subscribe to Making a Living Show on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more on the show, visit makingalivingshow.com and follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Making a Living Show is produced by Next Exit Media and hosted by me, Roby Levy. Thanks for listening.